Welcome to How to Read the Bible. I'm your host, Nate Claiborne, here again today with Benjamin Kant. How are we doing, Ben? Nate, doing well. Looking forward to jumping into the gospel according to Matthew and talking about what we have going on here. Okay, so when we last talked, we we did a little deep dive on Matthew 6, and Mm -hmm. then last week we've advanced since then. We're up to Matthew 13. So what are we... What are we jumping into today through that section? Yeah. Well, and the premise of our show is really uh, we assume that in some way we're at least mature and maturing Bible readers, mm-hmm. you, and, you and I. And so we're trying to model for people when we do our Bible reading, what are we doing? What are we seeing? What are we pointing out? How is this working for us? And so we're reading through Matthew. Uh, we read Matthew 12 recently. And as I'm reading Matthew 12... There's this story uh, where Jesus' disciples are hungry, and they pluck heads of grain and eat. Uh, the Pharisees see this, and they are not pleased with it. No. In fact, they challenge Jesus to say, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so Jesus goes and gives them uh, a couple examples of how there's Old Testament precedents for what they're doing. But then in verse 6, he says this. This is Matthew 12, verse 6. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. In verse 7, he goes, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would, have, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the, man, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 6 here. I'm sure most Bibles probably have a, a little letter there in verse 7 that points you to this coming from Hosea 6.6. 6. But if you've been reading and you've been paying close attention, you'll notice this is the second time that Jesus has quoted Hosea 6.6. 6. Mm-hmm. So let's go back into Matthew 9, a very similar setup. Uh, Jesus calls Matthew, um, arguably the author of this gospel, to come and follow him. And he rose and followed him. And then, and then Matthew uh, throws a party and invites all of his friends. And he throws this party because he's experienced the grace of Jesus and wants his friends to be exposed to who Jesus is as well. And and again, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So something I just thought it was interesting in Matthew 9, Jesus says, hey, go and learn what this means. In other words, I'm going to give you a pass, just assuming you don't know your Hebrew Bible, which is kind of insulting because these are the Bible guys of their day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then by the time we get to Matthew 12, there's no go and learn. It's like you had your shot. You missed it. And he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and sacrifice. In other words, if you'd done the Bible study I told you to go do, you wouldn't have made the same mistake twice. Yeah. And so... A few things that are important to point out here. Mm-hmm. Jesus is talking about what he's doing. And, and oftentimes people will make this claim as if Jesus kind of steps on the scene and just throws the book out. In other words, like just this sharp break from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, and just Jesus is doing this kind of crazy new thing, right? And everybody's like, what do we do with this guy? And Jesus himself doesn't actually view himself that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that I guess depending on what we assume is true about the Pharisees, which is not really explained in a lot of ways, but assuming they're these sort of experts in the law and the Old Testament, as we call it now, Mm -hmm. if they're always sparring with Jesus in these verbal question and answer matches, it would seem to imply he's at least antagonistic to the quote unquote ways of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. 
you could you could say that you could step back a little bit and say at least he's antagonistic to the common reading of the Old Testament of the day, mm-hmm. right? The, the the way in which the reading of the the Hebrew Bible is done by the Pharisees, Jesus is just not he's not really agreeing with. Yeah, um, and and so this matters because I was reading an article recently, and in that article, uh, uh, it was a it was an article about a recent situation going on in the church and um but it was written by a a christian but not a pastor or anything like that this guy's actually a lawyer and 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 in there he quotes um jeremiah and he quotes other a few other old testament passages and in the comments section which i typically steer away from because usually not helpful things happen in the comments section. Right. Uh, this comment was made and the comment was why are conservative christians so focused on the old testament Nearly all their biblical references seem to come from the Old Testament. As an American Baptist, I find this baffling. We are Christians after all, and this frantic focus on human sin that comes from the Old Testament does not seem to me to be what Jesus taught. So I use that just kind of as a case study, um, honestly, for our listeners' sake to say, is that the way you understand these things? Um, Would you say that there's that there's this sharp discontinuity or even disagreement between what Jesus taught and some of the emphases of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a great a great story or a couple stories to kind of tease that out. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, so one thing we could even lean into, just, just on the surface, um, in both of these stories, what the disciples do in Matthew 12 and what Jesus does in Matthew 9 are not strictly speaking condemned anywhere in the Old Testament. Mm, mm-hmm. So it, you're allowed to eat on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. If you construe picking heads of grain as work, mm-hmm. then we're talking about maybe violating the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, socializing with tax collectors and sinners, you could make a case, could lead to idolatry, could lead to intermingling with these pagan Gentiles and taking on their culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just actually Dining with them in and of itself, I don't know that we could find a passage in the Old Testament where it's condemned. Yeah. Which if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you might assume mm-hmm. the Pharisees are just towing the party line on what the Old Testament taught and Jesus is coming along and being radically loving and inclusive. And mm-hmm. that's not what the Old Testament is about. And this is a new thing. Yeah. Um, but that's just not the case. Like as we'll see when we look a little bit farther into Hosea six and mm-hmm. think about some other passages. Yeah, that's right. And so there is something confusing happening, I think, and that is that the people Jesus is kind of contending with throughout the gospels had a particular way of reading the Old Testament that Jesus was happy to dismiss mm-hmm. and happy to critic critique and to challenge. But in doing that, he used the Old Testament to do to do that critique and that challenge. Yeah, which says the issue is not with the Old Testament. The issue was with his critics and their reading of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. That's a really important distinction to make, because um, because again, this is alive and well even even among many of our listeners. Where uh, we at, here at New City did a curriculum working through biblical justice, and and we studied Leviticus nineteen. Okay, and in that um, there were some things about the gleaning laws and and how do the gleaning laws how might those um, be appropriated by us today and inform the way we budget and and do our work and things like that. And and some of the feedback I got was, well, that's the Old Testament. That doesn't apply to us. And so there's this sense of, um, yes, I can I can get what you're saying. We I'm not a I don't have 
fields of wheat that I'm leaving the corners un, uh, unharvested so that poor the poor and the sojourners could come and, and borrow and, and take some from. Yeah. So yes, in that sense, context is very different. But the principle remains that there's a way in which um, maximizing our income, if you will, or uh, being conscientious of the poor and the sojourner among us, that principle remains. And mm-hmm. so one of my favorite examples of this is there's nowhere in the New Testament that bestiality is condemned. Uh, so the New Testament doesn't condemn that anywhere. Mm-hmm. The Old Testament is really explicit about that. Right. Um, and so what do you do? Is that no longer a sin? Uh, we would all kind of get red in the face and say, of course it's a sin. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'd have to build that case off of the Old Testament. Um, there's no re-appropriation, kind of uh, re uh, appropriation, if you will, of that law. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes me think of a, a few things. Um, even as you brought... I'm not going to touch the bestiality thing. We'll just... We'll, we'll I end. want your thoughts on that, Nate. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll get there. I don't... Maybe I, offline. I'll go back to the topic you had before. Preach the of, gospel from bestiality. No, That's my no, challenge no, no. for you. <laughs> No, thank you. Um, well, I don't know. Let me. I hate to leave a challenge unaddressed. <laughs> That's I mean, right. um, but I, I would say so. Even the thing that you brought up with the gleaning laws, we even have modeled for us in Paul's writings that some of these obscure Old Testament laws have principles relevant. Mm-hmm. He's talking to, I think it's in Timothy, where he's talking about paying your pastors well. And he's like, you know, because of what it says in Deuteronomy, you don't muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain. That's right. And it's like, well, of Paul, course, Paul, that's clearly about like farming practices. That's right. And for Paul, it's like, no, the principle that you draw from that clearly applies to this situation. It's that's like, right. Okay, well, then maybe, maybe that's true elsewhere. The other thing that makes me think of is uh, we sometimes may mistakenly divide the testaments between Malachi and Matthew. Of, mm. This is the clear dividing line, and this is the old, and this is the new. But the real dividing line is the old and new covenants Mm -hmm. and the old covenant era comes to an end with Jesus death resurrection. Then the new covenant era starts. Um, And so all of these stories we're reading right here in Matthew are taking place during the old covenant era. That's huge. What you just said. So let's just pause for a moment. What you're saying is Matthew, Mark and Luke are all happening under the old covenant. Yeah. Up, up until the Passion Week, it's it's still technically, it's not the Old Testament as far as the Bible division, but it's during the old covenant. Yeah. So the decisive shift does not happen until Jesus rises from the dead, really. You could say Passover, the cross, the resurrection, yeah. that kind of week. You could um, say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which yeah. is what's said throughout Matthew's gospel. There's an era about to, an era change is about to happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could even allow for a hint of an overlap. Mm-hmm. So at Jesus' incarnation, the new era is beginning and then fully begins at mm. his resurrection and ascension. Either way, you're still saying this is this is kind of taking place during the old covenant era. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how do we interpret our scriptures as they stand right now? Yeah. And Jesus is really, maybe some background for listeners would be helpful, is when Jesus is sparring with the Pharisees, these are honor-shame matches, mm. and they're not asking questions for information. It's testing who has the better interpretation mm-hmm. of the scriptures that we all agree are still relevant. Mm-hmm. And Jesus never disputes that the Old Testament's still relevant. He mm-hmm. just disputes their way of understanding it. Yeah. it needs to be reframed and re- recontextualized in light of what he's doing. So, so the way that this is put um, in biblical study circles is that there's continuity 
and discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments. In other words, there's ways in which the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, don't really even skip a beat. I mean, it's just it's just one story, and there's uh, and, and and that's really important. It's one drama, if you will. But then that would be highlighting the continuity. But then to highlight the discontinuity, we could say there are different acts in that drama. Mm-hmm. There's Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 3. I don't mean the book of Acts, but I yeah, mean there's yeah. these different acts that play out. And and so that is, that's an important thing to wrestle with. And it's actually maybe one of the most difficult things for a good Bible reader to understand is where and which, how are the Old and New Testaments, how is their continuity, how is their discontinuity? And and I am of the persuasion that we should, we should err on the side of continuity unless otherwise told. And so I, I've heard it said, and I don't think this is, I've not actually done it, but I, don't, I think it symbolizes something well, which is you could take that little page, that single page in all of our Bibles that says new, the New Testament right before the gospel of Matthew and actually just tear that page out. Uh, because it, it, you know, there is a difference. One's written in Hebrew, one's written in Greek, one's, one's pre uh, Jesus, one's after Jesus has arrived on the scene, all those things, of course. But there's a sense in which it's not helpful uh, to st- to put a, a strong chasm between the Old and New Testaments. And so let's get back to our text and actually look at what mm-hmm. Jesus does here. I'm going to look at Matthew 9, just because it's right in front of me. And he says in verse 13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if we flip then to Hosea 6.6, 6, which is what he's quoting here. Um, and we read Hosea 6.6. 6, we, we would do well to read the whole context of that chapter. It's only 11 verses, so that's not hard. But, but just for time's sake, we're going to read just verse 6. It says, For I desire steadfast love. Now, um, Jesus is actually quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So that's why he says mercy and not chesed, steadfast love there. Mm-hmm. But, Which is, we should note in passing, is a notoriously difficult Hebrew concept to bring into English. There's not a single... English word that works. So even steadfast love, we're using a compound yeah. to make sense of this concept in the Old Testament. That's that's right. That's good. So it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is significant because in Hebrew poetry, there's this concept of parallelism. So those two lines are set in parallel to one another. Mm-hmm. For I desire steadfast love is aligned with the knowledge of God. And then, and not sacrifice is, is set connected with rather than burnt offerings. So let's go back now to the Gospels, to Matthew 9, Matthew 12. And what's really going on here? Jesus is saying that the claims of mercy, uh, I desire steadfast love, I desire mercy. The claims of mercy take precedence in Jesus's reading of the Old Testament over the claims of ceremonial laws. Um, and, and so the, the Pharisees, they loved the ceremonial laws. They were scrupulous about keeping them, whether it was abstaining from interacting with quote unquote sinners and those who are unclean, or whether it was their, their kind of additional laws that they built on top of the Sabbath command in order to protect them from breaking the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Um, and so all of those things helped them to withdraw from sinners and to remain, uh, separate from those who Jesus would say are the very people he came for. Yeah. And we, we could just put a note in here. Historically, it's worth understanding, uh, as the Pharisees see it, part of the reason, if not the reason they got sent into exile was for failing to follow the law. Mm-hmm. And so there's this sense of, well, we're not going to make the same mistake twice. Mm-hmm. And so we're just going to be very focused on all the ceremonial things, all the civil things, all mm-hmm. the moral things. 
but really, they're looking at it as the civil ceremonial, which we're, we're, we're drawing on a threefold division that's popular in making sense of Leviticus, of saying some of the laws in Leviticus are moral. They're very clearly, we would say, transcendent. They're repeated in the New Testament. They're mm-hmm. about how we treat one another in a general sense. A lot of the laws are civil. They have to do with governing a society, governing in, in Leviticus a potential theocracy around the corner. Mm-hmm. And then the ceremonial laws, what we're talking about is the things related to sacrifices, but also keeping you separate from the pagan peoples that surround you. So it's about... Clean and unclean. It's the things you eat. It's what you wear. It's how mm-hmm. you dress. It's who you interact with. It's all, all of those things. Um, the Pharisees would be looking back and seeing... Well, we got mixed up in idolatry because of intermingling with the Canaanites and all of these other peoples. And so we need to separate ourselves from those other peoples as much as possible in the way Mm -hmm. we dress and who we talk to and what we eat. And so they just sort of doubled down on an aspect of the law, Mm -hmm. but at the exclusion of the whole law and even the weightier things of the law, which was that Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, but you Mm. can't do that if you're keeping them at arm's length. Yeah, that's well said. And you said something earlier about how they missed the plot. Tell, tell us what you meant by that. So it, there's a sense in which they lost the plot of the storyline. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham, and we just had this on our sermon series, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. It was, mm-hmm. he's receiving blessing in this relationship with Yahweh so that he can be a blessing to the other peoples that mm-hmm. he comes in contact with. We can't do that if you're constantly keeping other people at arm's length. And mm-hmm. so you're, they would say they're, sons of Abraham, but they're not living like they're part of his family. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not following in his footsteps. Um, but they're, in their mind, we would say, doing everything they can to avoid a second exile. Mm-hmm. And they still would feel, to some extent, and this is controversial, um, that the current exile hasn't really ended, because mm-hmm. even though they're back in the land, they still are under the Romans' thumb. Mm-hmm. So they're not really out of the woods yet, and sure. so they really need to, if they're more obedient and more scrupulous, mm-hmm. then the Messiah will come and get rid of the Romans. Mm-hmm. And and so that's, uh, you're you're helping us empathize with the Pharisees here. You're helping us give context to why they would be so scrupulous about keeping some of these laws. Yeah, um, it, it's... Maybe just to even flesh out what I was saying about lost the plot, it's it's as if they're focused on something that's not insignificant, but yeah. it's not the main thing you need to be focused on. And Jesus is challenging them in that of mercy and showing justice to other people is more important than whether you made all the correct sacrifices mm-hmm. yeah, in the grand good. scheme of things. That's good. And one of the things I like to do, and it drives uh, my wife Alana crazy sometimes, is when we're watching movies together... Uh, as soon as I get a hunch about how things are going to turn out, I'll usually just say it out loud. I'll just name it. And and I'm actually pretty good. I'm good enough to keep doing it, even though I probably really only have like a 60% success rate. That's still pretty good for predictions. It's not bad. Yeah, you, uh, could be, you could be a weatherman. <laughs> that's right. Scattered and isolated, That's yeah. what, which means nothing in Florida. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, but what am I doing? I'm, I'm paying attention to patterns and details in the story, in the plot thus far, and trying to predict what's going to happen. But the times when I'm wrong are usually when I pay attention to the wrong sets of details and clues and things like that in the plot line. And so I miss, a, I miss something up and I, and I miss the, the prediction for the future. In many ways, the Pharisees are trying to predict, they're trying to live as if they understand how the plot's going. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize that when the Messiah is coming, he's coming actually for the sinners. 
He's coming for those who are ceremonial and clean and morally un- unclean. And, and, and he's coming not to just to vanquish the Roman Empire. He will do that, but it's going to be through a cross, not through a sword. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're missing details of the plot line. And what Jesus is doing is he's going, oh, let's go back. Do you remember this in Hosea? Oh, do you remember this with Abraham? Oh, do you remember this with Moses? And he's pointing out how the plot actually does point to who he is when he stepped on the scene. Yeah, And so if they had desired, if they had known the knowledge of God, who God is, what he's like, rather than burnt offerings, they wouldn't have missed Jesus. But that's the problem is when Jesus stepped on the scene, they did not know who God was. And so they missed him. Yeah, And they, they thought he was a, a threat rather than the Messiah himself. Yeah. Well, and he, it, it, it's instructive that he goes back to Hosea. That's the first of the minor prophets as we read it. But even as you go through the minor prophets, and we'll be doing that in CBR next year, um, we really see there's three reasons Israel gets sent into exile. And the Pharisees had focused on one of them, the idolatry piece, never going to make that mistake again. Mm-hmm. But the other reason was religious ritualism. They're just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. Their heart's not really in Isaiah it. Isaiah 58. Right. They kind of slip back into that to some degree. And that's sort of why Jesus is calling them on. It's like, your heart's not really even in the thing that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing that's really clear from the prophets as a reason for exile is that they didn't care for the widow and the orphan. They mm. didn't. They didn't pursue mercy and justice. Mm-hmm. They were focused on just other things besides that. And so he's even kind of pulling from the prophets to say, if you go back and read the prophets, you can see that you're focused on only part of mm. what the problem was. Mm-hmm. And there's this bigger thing that is the real heart of the matter that you're still sort of ignoring because it's a lot more difficult. Um, the things that they're focusing on are very checklisty. They appeal to our sense of accomplishment. They mm-hmm. appeal to our ability to frame everything out in black and white of, mm-hmm. yeah, I know whether or not I've had dinner with a tax collector and a sinner, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily know if I've been as just as I could be, or I've been as merciful as I could be, mm-hmm. or if I've overlooked an opportunity to show hesed mm-hmm. to someone. Yeah, that's good. Well, just to summarize and to kind of bring us to a conclusion we probably will talk about the discontinuity because we talked a lot about the continuity. Mm-hmm. We should probably talk about the discontinuity when Jesus steps on the scene, something unparalleled in the history of the world actually does happen. Yeah. <laughs> so some discontinuity for sure that we need to highlight. Maybe we'll do that in a future episode. Um, but just to highlight some principles, one is the way the new Testament uses the old Testament really matters mm-hmm. and pay attention to it because it's not probably what you think it is most times. Um, and so one of the, maybe another principle is go look up uh, whatever the Old Testament citations are, whatever the Old Testament that's being quoted in the New Testament, go look it up, go read it in context, get a sense of what's going on like we did with Hosea 6.6. Yeah. And I would say this is this is a good example of one that you might not see right away. You and I both knew it was an Old Testament quote, but as I'm looking at it, mm-hmm. it's, this is an opportunity for you to really look at your Bible, not just in the sense of like read closely, but when he says, go see what this means, when it's in quotes, now mm-hmm. you know he's quoting from someone, but mm-hmm. it's not set off the way a normal Old Testament quote is. Yeah, that's right. So you would have to kind of be paying attention to see that, oh, he's quoting from somewhere, mm-hmm. and then look at your little cross-reference, and then go back and that's flip good. over to Hosea. And then the last, the third thing I would point out is, what I did was, I had read in, in Matthew 9, Jesus quote the same verse. And then when I came back to it in Matthew 12, and he said it again, I thought, 
this must be important to Jesus. He says mm-hmm. it twice. and uh, There must and be a connection between these stories, too. That's exactly right. We might be able to get a glimpse into what Jesus is about by connecting these stories, reading them parallel, um, flipping back and forth between the pages to kind of get a sense of what is he really getting after? Go and learn what this means, and then you should have known better. You just failed to take the Bible study lesson I taught you before. Mm-hmm. And, and really to summarize that, it is that Jesus values the claims of mercy towards neighbor very highly. And so when they set up other aspects of the law over and against that, and they failed to, as the next story would show in Matthew 12, they they didn't want him to heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And he said, no, 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 you would get your donkey out of the well if it fell in there. You'd get your sheep out of the well. How much more value is a human being than an animal? Maybe there's the gospel and bestiality, who knows? (laughs) Uh, But how much more value are they? So much so that I would come as God in human flesh and die for them. Human beings are more valuable than animals. Yeah. That's a good word to end on, Ben. I'm glad we were able to chat today and look forward to next week. Yes, sir. Thanks.